Y'all did good getting here on Spring Forward Sunday, man. Love it. Love seeing who's true, who a true believers are, true Christians. It's awesome. Awesome being here with y'all. Y'all know that I'm kidding. You can oversleep and still be a Christian. Let me pray. God, we're thankful for uh, just the opportunity to sing true things this morning, Lord. We are thankful that you have given us through your word and through the work of the Spirit uh, access to these awesome, timeless truths about who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. I'm thankful, Lord, for songwriters that have written things that we can sing and uh, enjoy about you uh, that not only are a pleasing aroma and an offering to you, but are also a a reminder to us that are teachers and tutors for us about these great things about who you are and what you've done. Lord, I'm thankful that we get to enjoy that every single week. I I pray that you would uh, just tune our hearts into the greatness of your um, love for us, uh, the sacrifice that was made for us, and the person and work of your Son. Lord, I pray that uh, as it's conditioned our songs this morning, that it'll condition our listening and our preaching, and that uh, it will continue to be a sweet aroma to you and an offering. Lord, we just turn this time over to you, and we ask you to use it. Uh, Lord, we too want to lift up an, another church in our community, praying for uh, Chet Haney and Highland Terrace Baptist Church, and for Chet as he's recovering from an, an injury, from a fall from a ladder. I uh, just pray that you would continue to heal him, Lord, and thankful that he was not hurt uh, any worse than he was, and just uh, entrusting him to you, Lord, and entrusting his healing process to you. And uh, Lord, we pray that he would enjoy you in this time where he may be uh, immobile, uh, somewhat that he is um, spending that time uh, walking closely with you. Pray that, that that this time as he walks with you would spill over first off, uh, first of all onto his family, Lord, that you would bless him in his home and that his worship uh, would condition as a shepherd in that home, would condition that, that worship at home. And then secondly, that it would impact and influence the life of the church at Highland Terrace. And we entrust that church to you, Lord. We're thankful for your many years of, of ministry to this community through Highland Terrace Baptist Church. And we're I'm thankful for the chance to lift them up this morning. I pray that in these next few minutes that they will be blessed, Lord, that you will equip them to be salty, bright, and aromatic as well as you will equip us. And um, we just uh, are thankful to uh, lift them up. Too, Lord, I want to pray for little Everett Cummings. And i uh, just thankful for uh, the treatment that he's receiving in California, Lord. I want to pray for Colton and Caroline and Milo and the demand that is on their family right now, Lord. We want to ask you to, first of all, sustain them. Uh, that you, you that they would even flourish in the season somehow as they have to draw and depend on you uh, like never before. Lord, we just pray that you would sustain them. I uh, pray that you would grow them in worship and wonder. And too, Lord, we share the desire of our heart that you would heal little Everett. Uh, we just entrust this family to you, entrust this little boy to you, and thankful that you are a good father and a good shepherd and a good uh, uh, physician, and uh, thankful that we can bring these to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're in Matthew chapter 4. You can turn there this morning. You heard Mike read from Matthew chapter 4 this morning. Uh, Before we get into Matthew chapter 4, I actually want to equip you with something. I want to just a little brief encouragement. Uh, If you've not read through the Bible before, there are some great little apps that you can get on your phone. I have a little app, um, McShane reading app, that guides you through the Bible. You can uh, you can do a thematic is what I'm doing this year, where it sort of connects passages that are sort of tied together in four different places in the Bible or a couple different places. It varies each week. Um, 
But there are other ways to, you can move chronologically, other ways you can move through the Bible. But my encouragement is that when you do that, you will actually unearth some things that will make really wonderful connections later on. So if you have a you know, passage of Scripture that you tend to gravitate toward, man, that's awesome. Enjoy those. But realize there's some obscure passages over there that will oftentimes shed light on those passages that are dear to you that will hit you in a way that's like visceral, like deep. I mean, like just like make you want to write a song or something. I mean, that kind of goodness. So my encouragement to you is to plow off into that is through my little journey through Leviticus. I've been in Leviticus these last few weeks that I began to see some things that sort of connected to where we are in Matthew. So uh, we're going to start in Leviticus this morning. You don't need to turn there. In fact, don't even put the, the passages up on the screen. Okay, I want you guys to just listen to a few passages. I want to sort of give you a, a tool that we'll end the morning with. Okay, this will be sort of our start and our landing with the middle being unpacking Matthew chapter 4. Okay? So this may seem like it's completely irrelevant right now, but you'll see that it'll come full circle in a moment. Leviticus, and I'll give you the references in case you want to turn there or you'd like to jot them down and look at them later. I'm just going to share a few obscure, kind of weird even, passages from the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 13 The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot, and it turns into a case of leprous disease on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest, or to one of his sons the priests, or one of his sons the priests, and the priest shall examine the diseased area on the skin of his body. And if the hair in the diseased area has turned white, and the disease appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is a case of leprous disease. When the priest has examined him, he shall pronounce him unclean. Key word this morning. But if the spot's white in the skin of his body and appears no deeper than the skin, and the hair in it has not turned white, the priest shall shut up the diseased person for seven days. He gets quarantined. And the priest shall examine him on the seventh day. And if in his eyes the disease is checked and the disease has not spread in the skin, then the priest shall shut him up for another seven days. Quarantine some more. And the priest shall examine him again on the seventh day. And if the diseased area has faded and the disease has not spread in the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. It is only a mere eruption. And he shall wash his clothes and be clean. Let me see where I want to end. I want to put two more verses. But if the eruption spreads in the skin after he's shown himself to the priest for his cleansing, he shall appear again before the priest, and the priest shall look. And if the eruption has spread in the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It's a leprous disease. Okay. Crazy stuff we got going on right there. All right. Later on in the chapter, okay, chapter 13, it says the leprous person, this person who's been reckoned unclean, says the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. In case anybody missed that, says it again. He shall live alone and his dwelling shall be outside the camp. Okay, anybody that knows my germ issues knows that I'm totally grossed out by reading all that. All of it. I mean, really nasty stuff. If I would have been a priest back then, homeboy would have had to go to another priest. No, I ain't not even going to look at it. Nasty stuff. Okay. Now check it out. We're not done, though. We've got some more stuff to gather from Leviticus. And I promise you, you're going to see why this comes full circle. 
In the next chapter, Leviticus chapter 14, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. Now, I don't know. Leprosy probably was comprised of any sort of skin disease. So it wasn't just like if your nose is falling off. It would be like you know, something that you might be quarantined if you had a rash. Like, oh, this might be leprosy in the making. So you're quarantined. So this was probably pretty common, common enough to where they had to have some instructions in the book of Leviticus. Okay? The Lord spoke to Moses saying, this shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. Okay? He shall be brought to the priest and the priest shall go out of the camp. Notice the geography. The priest has to leave the camp because remember the leprous person is outside the camp at this point. So the priest has to walk outside the camp and the priest shall look. If the case of leprous disease is healed in the leprous person, if it's healed, then the priest shall command them to take for, for him who is to be cleansed two live clean birds, cedar wood, scarlet yarn, hyssop, all this crazy sort of cocktail of offering. And then in verse 7 it says, He shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. Then he shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird go into the open field. Okay, just the brief point I wanted to give you there is this picture of the unclean person. They have leprosy in this case. And the priest has to mobilize to go outside the camp, not to heal him, just to see and notice and look and see if he is healed. And then through a sacrifice to reckon him cleansed. Okay, okay kind of keep that handy for later in the morning. A couple more things I want to show you. Later in the book of Leviticus, chapter 21. Chapter 21 is the, are the instructions for the priests. Okay, so a lot of this is going to Aaron. Moses gave this instruction to Aaron. Uh, later on in the chapter, in verse 16, chapter 21, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near. Okay, just like the priests like, had to look like Ken dolls or something. I mean, it had to be nice-looking, handsome fellas. No blemishes. Nothing wrong with them. A man blind or lame or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand or a hunchback or a dwarf or a man with a defect in his sight or an itching disease or scabs. No man of the offspring of Aaron, the priest who has a blemish, shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings. Since he has a blemish, he shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, both of the most holy and the holy things, but he shall not go through the veil to approach the altar because he has a blemish. Okay? Hang on to that. Later on in chapter 22, okay, we're gathering up some things, and I'm going to synthesize here for you in a minute, so just indulge me. Hang, hang in there with me. Chapter 22 goes into some, some details about acceptable offerings, okay, in terms of critters, lambs, goats, you know, doves, things like that. It says, when any one of the house of Israel, this is in verse uh, 18, if it's to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish. Don't bring no buck-toothed lamb up in here. One-eyed, bug-eyed, one-legged joker. <laughs> That'd be funny. Three-legged. We'll give him three legs. <laughs> One-legged would be really hard. <laughs> Don't bring him up in here. Of the bulls or the sheep or the, or the goats. Let me regroup. Hold on. I got that image in my head. I can't get it out. (laughs) 
Okay. Stop. Stop it. All right. All right. I'm going to start crying here. All right. You shall not offer. All right. Hold on. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, all right, I promise you I'm trying to get through this. All right, hold on. I got it. I kind of started a little laugh cry there. All right, I'm preaching. I need to regroup here. When anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or has a free will offering from the herd or from the flock to be accepted, it must be perfect. Man, these critters better be like kin critters. Like I'm t- talking Ken and Barbie dolls. I might be dating myself. Like these, these guys better be really handsome critters. There should be no blemish in it. Animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or an itch or scabs you shall not bring to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. Okay. Now the reason I invested in those passages, they might seem like they're just like, what in the world is that going to have to do with Matthew chapter 4? What I want you to see is sort of like this image of these concentric circles of acceptability and approachability to God. Okay, first we're talking about the leprous. If they have leprosy or they have some sort of skin disease, they're either isolated and contained and quarantined, or if they prove to have leprosy, they have to vacate. They have to evacuate the camp and live outside the camp on the outermost circle. As you move inward, you start to kind of pay attention. Like even the priests, if a priest, one of the Levites, one of Aaron's sons had any sort of blemish, they couldn't even go into the most inner circle of the tabernacle. Okay, and even in regards to critters, critters couldn't be taken in there if they had some sort of blemish or some sort of reason that they weren't really fine, presentable, perfect, it says, animals. Okay, I want you to have that visual of those concentric circles of acceptability. The more defective The more diseased you were, the further distanced you were from God. God's in the tabernacle, at least in in this image. That's where you go visit with God. The further distanced you were from God, even to the point where some had to live in isolation outside the camp. Okay, now go to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to come full circle to that imagery in Leviticus. When Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 23, going through verse 25. And let me just kind of give you a plan for the morning. I know that was a little bit of a complicated investment, but I promise you it'll pay off. We're not going to do a real complicated treatment of this passage. If you want a kind of a map for the morning that helps people listen, we're going to unpack some things, three things from this passage. Matthew kind of gives us an outline from this passage. And we're going to have kind of a little bird's eye view of Christ's ministry. Okay, it's really cool. All right, so here we go. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Okay, Jesus is ministering in Galilee. We've established the last couple of weeks, Galilee is not exactly prime um, geography. It's not exactly the place to live in Israel. It was the place that they considered Kabul, the place that they considered um, to be sort of a, uh, a worthless and sterile place. We might even consider Galilee to be sort of a place that we could even call, if we want to borrow some metaphor, outside the camp. 
approximately 70 miles by 40 miles in size, okay, the region. It's quite a large area. Josephus, an ancient historian, estimated that there were 3 million people in this region in Galilee at the time of Christ. We don't know that that's true or not, but there's some records that indicate that there were 204 larger cities that had at least 15,000 people in it. This place was highly populated, and at least of the population we know were Gentiles. The Jews that were there uh, were, weren't really taken seriously because they're so far away from the flagpole in Jerusalem. Galilee, as you remember, is way north of Jerusalem and Judea. And it's here in this sort of outside-the-camp environment, in this unlikely place, that Jesus' ministry is in full swing. Okay? A lot of places to minister in Galilee. There's quite the crowds that are following. You're going to hear that word frequently throughout the book of Matthew where crowds gather. If you understand the population here, you realize how many people were there and the opportunity for the gathering of a crowd. And Matthew, in this passage we're looking at today and in the last few that we've looked at these last couple of weeks, he nicely summarizes what we're going to see in detail in the rest of the book. Okay, it's sort of like the cliff notes. I brought that up last week. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at a nine-word sermon in verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Last week, I think it was, we looked at the call, or week four last, I can't recall exactly. We looked in verse 19, a ten-word call. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Okay, this real condensed, sort of synthesized explanation, bird's-eye view of Christ's ministry. And that's what we're seeing here in verse 23 through 25. It's a bird's-eye view of the rest of the story. We're flying the last couple of weeks and this morning at like 10,000 feet. Okay, you can still see earth down there. You can still see some contours at 10,000 feet. Okay, in the next few weeks or in the next coming weeks as we get into the Sermon on the Mount and the rest of the book, we're going to be like nap of the earth. We're going to be flying and hooking and jabbing and we'll get out of the plane at times. We'll walk real slow. We'll walk through the groves and consider the woods and the trees. But for now, we're sort of considering the forest and from this passage, Matthew gives us a beautiful outline of the forest. He gives us three things that I think make for a nice outline. Last week, you might remember, yeah, it was a call last week. Last week, you may remember the verbs where I guided last week. We followed the verbs. Well, this week, we're following participles. I sent out a little email this week, and I, some of y'all, I hope if you read it, you know, you're like, oh, what's a participle? You might have Googled. Well, I forgot what a participle was. Okay, let me just kind of help you a little bit. It's sort of a verbal noun. Okay, and there are three of them here where you see an ing added to a word that sort of gives us a guide for how we're going to unpack this passage. And those three verbal nouns, those three participles are Jesus is going through Galilee teaching. That's the first thing. Secondly, he's proclaiming. And third, he's healing. So we're going to follow that guide, that outline this morning and just look at those three things. His teaching, his proclaiming. And it's healing from 10,000 feet. Now, one of the things I want to encourage you to do, I want you to think about how we might handle these three things. Christy and I, I it seemed like I remembered in the news um, this last year, someone finding a big old diamond somewhere in Arkansas. So I was, Christy and I were talking about it last night. I said, man, isn't there some place where you can go dig for diamonds in Arkansas? And some of y'all probably know exactly what I'm talking about. I see some heads nodding. It's Crater of Diamonds is what this place is called in Murphy's Borough, um, Arkansas. Yeah, it's Murphy's. Yeah, Murphy's Borough, Arkansas. A lady last year, and this is the news that I heard. A lady in September of last year found a, a 2.6 carat diamond there, and you get to keep what you find. 
I mean, apparently, previously, they found one in 2015 that was eight and a half carats. It's like worth millions of dollars. You get to keep what you find. And Christy's like, we should go there. I said, totally. I could find you a, a nice diamond and get, make you a new ring, like a proper ring, <laughs> like a wedding ring. You know, this would be kind of cool. But this gal, this, she found a seven, uh, this 71-year-old lady. She wanted to remain anonymous. So I just said, well, we're just going to call her Gertrude. Gertrude found this diamond, this awesome diamond, and it was 2.6-carat di- uh, diamond because she was willing to dig. I mean, you're not going to show up a Crater of Diamonds and just walk around, right? You're going to bring a shovel because you're ready to dig because you know there's some really good stuff under there. So that's what we're going to do these next few minutes. We're going to dig a little bit, all right? We're going to join Gertrude, and we're going to dig into these three participles. First of all, the teaching in the synagogues. Okay, Jesus is moving all over Galilee, teaching in the synagogues. Now, if it's going to be synagogues, you know the audience, Okay, we're not talking about a bunch of Gentiles. We're talking about Jews. Jews are going to be the audience in the synagogues. Okay, that's a given. Uh, it was a very common practice in lo- the local synagogue in ancient times for a, a traveler, an itinerant teacher, a rabbi, if he's traveling around, to be invited in to do some teaching. Okay, so we suspect that's probably what happened, that Jesus is invited in as he moves through the area in Galilee. It's quite a big area, and he, he goes into these synagogues to teach. Now, Matthew doesn't give us any content of what he teaches. It's, it's like the first time so far, I'm like, Matthew, come on, man. I want something. I want some content. So we're actually going to borrow one of, one of uh, his contemporaries. Uh, we're going we're to go to Luke chapter 4. And I'll go ahead and give you a plan so you can kind of jot down where we're going to be going um, in our word this morning. You need to keep Matthew 4 as home base. And I have three, I think, other passages that we'll turn to over the course of the morning. The first is Luke chapter 4. The second one is Hebrews chapter 10. And the third is Hebrews chapter 13. Okay, so that's the only places I have you going this morning. But keep Matthew 4 handy. Like if if you have a a marker or something like that or a doily or something, whatever you cover your Bible with, put that in in Matthew chapter 4. Okay, but turn to Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse uh, 15. Let me turn there too. This is pretty great. We don't know what in the world, according to Matthew, Jesus was teaching in these synagogues. But we do have a window into this teaching in this synagogue in Nazareth, which is in Galilee. Okay, and Luke even times it out the same. Okay, let me just read it just so, just so you can kind of climb in. I'm going to begin in verse 15. And again, we're asked, trying to ask the question, ask and answer the question. What is Jesus teaching in these synagogues? Okay. Man, this is strong. All right, beginning in verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Okay, you remember that. The Spirit descends and remains on him, descends on him like a dove at his baptism. And then he goes into the wilderness in his time of testing. Look right, right above in, in the passage, beginning in verse, or chapter 4, verse 1, the temptation of Jesus. Okay, he's, he's placing it time-wise right along parallel with Matthew. Right after the temptation of Jesus, he goes back up to Galilee And a report about him went through all the surrounding country. In verse 15, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. That's a good example of a word that I've made up that I think kind of captures the word, enjoyified. He's being enjoyified by all. They're like, man, he's bringing the good word. This is awesome. Okay, and let's see what happens. Let's see what he says specifically at the synagogue in Nazareth. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. 
Okay, and a scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. I can just imagine he was like, oh, all right, here we go. Isaiah, we're about to throw this on the ground. This is about to get crazy. All right, he throws some Isaiah down. He unrolled the scroll. I mean, can you, what a pregnant moment this must have been. He unrolls the scroll. You could hear a pin drop, I bet. And he found the place where it's written. This is from Isaiah chapter 61. He's referencing here. Isaiah 61 is a chapter that's like all dedicated to like a testimony from the Messiah. Written seven or 800 years before the Messiah came. Prophetic passage. If, like if the Messiah was actually to give testimony, this is, what the, this is what the Messiah would say. Pretty fitting that he's reading from this passage, right? He's reading from Isaiah chapter 61. He reads these two verses. Beginning of verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he's anointed me to, there's four things here that I want to draw out, five actually, to proclaim good news to the poor. Proclaiming good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. That's the second thing. Here's the third, recovering of sight to the blind. Here's the fourth, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And then fifth, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Okay, so he reads this passage. He rolls up the scroll. All right, I don't know. I mean, you saw how long it took me to read that passage. I mean, what, 20 seconds? I don't know, 30 seconds? He roll, he's invited to come teach at the synagogue. Big day. But maybe people had heard what was going on in his moving around the Galilee. So he, he gets up, he reads this passage. He rolls up the scroll. Could hear a pin drop. He gave it back to the attendant. And he sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, like I imagine he wasn't even looking around. He's just looking straight ahead. Today, this scripture, like the one I just read, has been fulfilled in your hearing, and all spoke well of him. I'll I'll come back to that in a minute. But he just like this pregnant, potent moment, reads this passage, goes over and sits down, He rolls up the scroll, hands it to the attendant, sits down, all eyes fixed on him. And he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, again, I want to draw out what's in that passage. I think it's important. There are five things that I sort of gathered up. First, he's proclaiming good news to poor people. We're not just talking financially poor either. We're talking about the needy, the downcast, the hurting, the broken. He's preaching good news, proclaiming good news to them. Secondly, he's proclaiming liberty to captives. Okay. Third, he's giving sight to the blind. He's, and, and fourth, that he's going to set at liberty the oppressed. And fifth, that he's proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. Likely that passage, the year of the Lord's favor, even in Isaiah chapter 61, is pointing back to Leviticus chapter 25, the year of Jubilee. If you've ever, ever studied the year of Jubilee, it's like a scandal. The year of Jubilee was this every 50 years, okay, where basically what happens if leading up to 50 years, if some point during a 50-year period, you're on down and out, you make some bad financial decisions, or you've gone through a period of just uh, real demand on you financially, and you've had to sell your property, on the year of Jubilee, you get your property back. Like, no questions asked. You go back to the property that was given to your father's. Okay, even crazier than that, if during that period, say, for example, you've had, if you have to sell your land, then maybe you have to sell yourself. You might have to become an indentured servant. 
So then on that year of Jubilee, not only do you get your land back, you get your freedom. Man, it's a beautiful year and beautiful imagery here. The year of the Lord's favor, this imagery of the year of Jubilee, coupled with liberty to the captives, sight to the blind, and liberty to the oppressed. This is a seriously great message. What a great reference. It looks like he really handled it well, too. Sort of an inductive approach, you know, where he kind of develops an itch and then he scratches it. He reads it and there's this potent pregnant moment where everybody's going, what's he going to say here? What's he going to do? And he sits down and he says, like a boss, it's being fulfilled right in front of you right now. Man. The next passage says that everyone thought well of him. I started to read that passage. It says in verse 22, all spoke well of him and all marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Man, boy, Mary's son. This guy's really turned out to be quite a, quite a speaker, hasn't he? I mean, likely Joseph is dead at this point since he's being referred to as Mary's son. Okay, but he's in his hometown. And they're like, ah, this is Jesus. Wow, he sure has turned out to be a good reader. Isn't he? Did you see how he handled that passage? And that whole inductive thing where he sort of created his itch and then sits down and sort of scratches it with that statement. He gets a bunch of hearty amens. They're like, man, that was really awesome. I mean, whew, he's articulate and good at reading. <laughs> but then he keeps talking. He's still talking, all right? He starts talking in verse 23, and then by verse 29, they want to throw him off a cliff. Man, what a potent message. <laughs> Gracious. I'm just imagining how the thing must have gone down. They liked his teaching at first. They thought, I guess, that he's just being sort of figurative. Like, Jesus, we thought you were just being kind of figurative, saying this fulfilled in your hearing. That's why we gave you an amen. But now when we realize you're actually talking about you're the fulfillment of that passage? Man, where's the closest cliff? Come here. Let's drag you out there and throw you off the cliff. And Jesus is like, no, literally. Like, literally. This scripture, this passage I just read to you is being fulfilled in your hearing. Like, not figuratively, not metaphorically. Like, right now, I am the fulfillment of this passage. Now, while we don't know what... He taught in all the synagogues, okay? We know what he taught in that one, in Galilee, and we know that it was seriously potent. I don't know why his message would be any different anywhere else. And apparently, itinerant preachers and teachers often taught the same messages and same sermons wherever they traveled, and they got really good at them. There's no, it'd be, I would not be surprised if he taught the same thing in each of these synagogues. I bet he didn't preach on budgets, I bet he didn't speak on friendships and how to have good friendships. See, I actually Googled some good teaching series, some popular teaching series today. And here's some of the ones I came up with. The power of routine. Oof. Man, that's going to get you visceral, isn't it? Ooh. Ooh. That makes you want to go die for my faith. The power of routine. Or how about, here's a series on the transitions of life. Thank the Lord he didn't show up in the synagogue teaching on transitions of life or the power of routine. Here was the most popular study that I found. What the Bible, or here's the title of it, The Bible Doesn't Say That was the series. The Bible doesn't say a penny saved and a penny earned. Isn't that delightful, man? I can't wait to hear that message. The Bible doesn't say that the Lord helps those who help themselves. Okay. Thankfully, our Lord did not show up in the synagogues teaching something like that. And we know in this one window that we have into Luke chapter 4, 
that he taught a potent lesson about himself, about the goodness and glory and wonder of his very presence there and the fulfillment of prophecy seven or 800 years, years old. From 10,000 feet, you're going to see Jesus teaching in the synagogues. Okay? All right, go to Matthew chapter 4. Go back. We're going to pick up the second thing. We know he's teaching in the synagogues. We know he's probably not teaching on budgets, teaching on something really awesome, something potent. Now, let me, let me qualify something, too. I don't want any of that to sound derogatory for a sermon series on budgets or a sermon series on transitions. I will, you'll probably never hear a sermon series at this church on what the Bible doesn't say. Okay, that's really kind of lame. But we can expect that Jesus is showing up preaching something seriously potent, teaching in the synagogues. Okay, well, here we find him preaching. He's teaching in the synagogues to the Jews, and here he's proclaiming is what that word means. It's also translated preaching. It's also translated heralding. He's proclaiming and heralding and teaching and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He's teaching in the synagogues, and he's preaching to the crowds. The images, the context that we have is sometimes, at least in where we're going in the rest of Matthew or in these next few chapters, that he's teaching or preaching from Mount, the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, we know some other occasions where he has to launch off into a boat into the Sea of Galilee and preach off the shoreline because the crowds were so uh, significant. But he's preaching and heralding and proclaiming the gospel, which is what this word means. His gospel is good news of the kingdom. Okay, the gospel of the kingdom is abbreviation of what's used frequently in the book of Matthew is the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. It's used in other gospels as the kingdom of God. Okay, now let me help you sort of vision, visualize what this is. Some people believe that this, this translation kingdom, kingdom of heaven, or kingdom of God, should actually be translated realm of God or reign of God. Because when you hear kingdom, if, we're, if you're like me, you probably tend to think of boundaries and space and geography, some, some kingdom that is located somewhere. In this case, what Jesus is preaching is the good news of the realm of God, the rule of God that has now come in the person of Christ. And this is seriously good news. See, what you may not realize, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 10, just so you'll be ready. What you may not realize is that since Genesis chapter 3, this world has needed some good news. Okay, if you know your Bible, if you've maybe ventured off into Genesis chapter 3, you know that's the turning point for mankind. We had a very brief window, <laughs> like a chapter. We were created in the next chapter, man, the fall of man. But since Genesis chapter 3, this world has needed some good news. Because since chapter 3 of Genesis, John says in 1 John chapter 5, 19, he says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Paul used this language, similar language in a couple other places. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, he referred to this Satan as the prince of the power of the air that's at work in the sons of disobedience. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he described him as the God of this world who blinds the minds of unbelievers. Since Genesis chapter 3, man, this Satan has had his way with this world. And we know that he's on the offensive. He's a deceiver. He's an accuser. And where Satan, he, wherever he is, he's prowling around looking for someone to devour. Man, this world has needed some seriously good news. And God's kingdom that's being preached now by Christ 
is good news because what he's saying is now this kingdom is breaking in. Now things are changing. I thought of maybe a way that might help you visualize this would be the tides. I lived in Southern California uh, years ago, and uh, Dana Point was a, a little a town that was near us, and had uh, the, it was a place where you could really see the tides coming in and out. It wasn't just beach, but it was actually rocks and jagged rocks and things that you could see when the tide was out. So I want you to just kind of visualize this for a moment. I want you to visualize that the tide has been going out since Genesis chapter 3. Okay, the tide is going out, and it's exposing as it goes out further and further since Genesis chapter 3. It's exposing shipwrecks. Okay, these carcasses, these holes with rust and moss and all the creatures that you could think could be attached to those urchins and everything that might be attached to it. Just envision this tide going out, exposing these crags and jagged rocks. Imagine this tide going out, exposing skeletons and ugly shorelines of the human experience under the reign and rule of the prince of the power of the air. Okay, let that visual just hit you, that tide going out. And then Jesus shows up and proclaims, the tide has officially turned. My presence here, my message here, my work here, and what I'm about to accomplish is going to turn the tide forevermore. Just shortly after Jesus went into Jerusalem on Passion Week, John chapter 12, he says, now, as in he's just been welcomed into the city with blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the crowds and the throngs cheering for him. And he says, now, now, now that Passion Week is here, now that I'm days away from being nailed to a cross, now is the judgment of this world. Now, in my cross, will the ruler of this world be cast out. Man, it's really good news that he's preaching, that this world that's needed good news since Genesis chapter 3 can find it and can hear it in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 10 has a beautiful, beautiful image. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, says, When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. Okay, you know what that is. That's the cross. When he was raised up and nailed to a cross, when he offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Now let me just show you this image, if I can do it without spilling something, coffee or myself. Whenever a king or a ruler or a general, for example, defeated someone else, it was a big to-do to have the defeated person come in and kneel and the victor to place their feet on top. While they're seated and they're reigning and they're ruling on the throne, to have that person come in, they became a footstool. Okay, so just envision this. I want you to envision this. Sin, in the work of Christ, sin, death, cancer, Hatred, cruelty. Man, let's just think of everything terrible we can put in there. Abuse, murder. I'm going to put abortion in there. Addiction. Every terrible thing you can think of is being placed in subjection under Christ's feet as of his work and his cross. Progressively, one at a time, placed under his feet where it is being placed there because he's the victor over all of those things and he's putting them to death. 
Man, that's a beautiful image that we've really got to enjoy. There are big tidal waves, big tidal waves of hope and peace and love and justice and righteousness that are cresting and are crashing and swallowing up the shipwrecks and the crags and the jagged rocks and the ugly shorelines of the human experience of our previous that came from our previous ruler. And I emphasize for us, previous ruler. Man, that's why this is crazy good news. See, injustice filled the earth, but God in Christ is writing injustice. (laughs) Conflict filled the earth, but God in Christ is bringing peace. Violence filled the earth, but y'all listen to this. Violence filled the earth, but God in Christ is forming a humble new humanity that's not ruled by violence, and it's called the church. He's forming this humble new humanity, this otherworldly humanity called the church. That's the good news. Do you realize who you are, church? Do you realize you're the outflow of the kingdom that showed up 2,000 years ago in the person and work of Christ? Do you realize that you're the place where things are being placed under his feet? You're the persons where things are dying in you and things don't live among us because they've been placed under his feet because he was victorious over them in the cross. Man, we're a little, tiny little glimpse of heaven on earth. Man, enjoy who we are as the church. Do you realize who you are? Your how and where Christ's rule and reign are breaking in as of the appearance and the work of Christ everything changed man he's got something to herald all right satan has ruled by permission up till now up to the cross but now in god's timing and christ's cross satan and his works and his influence and his ways and his schemes and his strongholds are being placed in subjection under his feet under the feet of christ Man, that's worth heralding. <laughs> that's worth proclaiming. I need to acknowledge, too, the changing of the tides are nearly imperceptible. Having lived out there for a while, having watched those tides come and go, you can't see that microsecond where more water is coming in than has been going out. You can't see it. You can't perceive it. And it might be for us hard to perceive the changing of a tide because we still see plenty of sin, death, cancer, hatred, cruelty, abortion, abuse, murder, and addiction. We still see those things, right? But the people of God know that the changing of the tide happened 2,000 years ago on Calvary. We know it because he said it. We know in that microsecond that the tides changed, that for us it was in the hour of the cross. That's the good news that Christ came to herald. That's the good news that he came to accomplish. Man, he taught in the synagogues and he preached the good news of the kingdom breaking in. The third thing, you can go back to Matthew chapter 4 if you need to. You might recall it. The third thing is he's healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Verse 24 adds to it. It gives it, fleshes it out. That's in verse 23. It says, the sick, the afflicted with diseases and pains, the oppressed by demons, the epileptics, the paralytics, he healed them. And from the sound of it, all who could even get close to him are finding some healing. Man, as I'm thinking about it, these healings fit so nicely with that window that we had into his teaching in the synagogue from Luke chapter 4, the reference back 
to Isaiah chapter 61, liberty to captives, recovery of sight to blind, and liberty to the oppressed. Christy and I have had, I guess, 21 years of a front row seat to watching blindness. Evan less so than Luke. Evan can see quite a bit better than Luke. Um, When we start talking about, we use this sort of imagery of recovery of sight to the blind, sandwiched into liberty to captives and liberty to the oppressed, I I, I feel like I have a window into that. Because I watched Luke marooned in his blindness. We dropped Luke off at school this last year, back in the fall. And Christy and I came for a, uh, uh, the orientation week. And the first couple of days we spent with Luke and we were kind of guiding him around and trying to help him sort of map the campus in his, in his head. <laughs> these these, these uh, concrete sidewalks that just go everywhere. And there's no reference. There's no audible reference for where you are in space and time. You can't see a landmark and you just have this maze. Now, Luke figured it out as the time we were there, mostly. Um, we found out the week after we left that he nailed a tree trying to find a, one of his classes, like ran into it, and probably had a concussion because he wandered around campus for 30 minutes. He was lost. He couldn't even, couldn't even get his bearing. But Christy and I had a front row seat into this, this picture of the captive and the oppressed. Um, when we dropped him off, he... Um, uh, we were there for the, the orientation week, and the first thing he had to do by himself, he had to show up to a big table that had a bunch of balloons hanging and a bunch of new students that are standing around this table, and they're broken down by letters of their last name. You know how that goes. You move up to a table, A through D or whatever, F through whatever. Well, Christy and I weren't, weren't supposed to be there at that point, but we were. Okay, we're just watching from edges. Watched him come up. He's standing there in line, and he doesn't realize the line is moving forward. So the line moves forward, and the people around him walk around him like he's a light post. Sucks being a captive in blindness. A few minutes later, he finally, I, somebody says, hey, man, they're moving forward. So he moves forward. He gets to the line, and he's next. And Luke McGraw, he says, oh, you're in the wrong line. He's got his cane with him, too. Oh, you're in the wrong line. So Luke's like, Luke hadn't learned to self-advocate very well yet. He should have gone, okay, can you show me where the right one is? So he just kind of backed out with his cane. He stands back there at the back, and he's just kind of standing there with his cane. Marooned. I mean, imprisoned. I eventually said, I guided him up there. I stepped up there. I wasn't supposed to be there. I stepped up there. So here you are. Here's your line. And then they promptly, once he got to the front, they told him to say, go over there and meet by those balloons. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it's heartbreaking to have a visual of blindness. But it's just one picture of anyone who's marooned in some sort of deafness, blindness, some sort of condition, immobility, paraplegia, epileptic. Man, just think for a moment. This picture of being imprisoned. Man, it's graphic. We've had some graphic things we've read this morning already. Let the graphic picture hit you. Just imagine that concept of that disability and being imprisoned within it. And then this Jesus shows up. He preaches a message of a new kingdom. Liberty to captives. Man, recovery of sight to the blind. 
liberty to the oppressed. How could he not heal these people trapped in sickness and blindness and disease? How could he not liberate those oppressed by demons and those attacked by this invisible enemy called epilepsy? How could he not give mobility to those who are unable to move? Man, Isaiah's prophecy was indeed being fulfilled in their hearing. Mm. From 10,000 feet, he's teaching some potent messages. If Luke 4 is a tutor, potent messages. 10,000 feet, he's preaching. Great news. The tides have changed and turned. Man, the waves are crashing in, these tidal, beautiful waves of peace and hope and love. And he's healing. He's letting captives free. Mm, the result in verse 25 is fame. Fame, near and abroad. He gives some geography, too. There's fame in Syria, which is north of Galilee. There's fame in Galilee, of course. There's fame in the Decapolis, which is east of Galilee. It's ten cities east of Galilee. There's fame in the south in Jerusalem and Judea. There's fame even in the Transjordan, across the Jordan. The only place that he doesn't, he doesn't identify as fame is to the west, because that's the Mediterranean Sea. Every possible trajectory, there's fame. Every possible cardinal, cardinal direction, there's fame, fittingly, because the king has come. Okay, so what are we supposed to do with this? I have one thought, one thought for you, but oh, man, it's good. What are we supposed to do with this in March of 2019 in Greenville, Hunt County, North Texas, in whatever subdivision you live, in whatever workspace you work? I want you to go back to that visual that I handed you this morning from Leviticus. It was graphic, I know, gruesome even. Ugh. But what I want to develop there is this concentric circles of acceptability. I have one more passage for you to turn to this morning. You can go and turn there and be ready. Hebrews chapter 13. This is where we're landing the plane. I developed these concentric circles of acceptability or this sort of visual for you to see that the more defective or diseased you were, the further distanced you were from God and the tabernacle. Even to the point where some had to live in isolation outside the camp, unclean, unclean. Okay, walking around, hair hanging loose, clothing torn. Okay, and you know in Leviticus 14, that passage I read to you where the priest, remember what it said there? The person that's leprous, that's outside the camp, if you feel like you've healed, ah, things looking pretty good. Feels like I'm healing up. Can you call for the priest? The priest would come outside the camp and identify if he's really healed. Okay, then he would take him through a cleansing ritual. Okay? Let me show you something here that's different about this Jesus. That's different about this high priest. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 13, it says, Therefore, actually I'm going to start in verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate, outside the camp, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. Here's what I want you to see this morning. Here's what I think that was something we can really do that's, that's just really fitting in regards to this 10,000 view perspective of him teaching and preaching and healing is this picture of Jesus going outside the camp to get folks who are defective, who are blemished, who are 
imperfect and going outside the camp not to just identify, hey, are you healed or not, but actually to make them clean, to actually heal them. All throughout this story of Leviticus, if you touch any of these people, what happens to you? You're made unclean. When you touch Jesus or Jesus touches you, you're made clean. It's the opposite effect. He holifies. He cleanifies. We're going to make some words up. He's not made unclean. He makes these people, these hurting, marooned, afflicted, oppressed people clean. If you enjoy the picture of a Jesus that leaves the Father's right hand. I mean, we're talking about the ultimate holy of holies. And he goes into these concentric circles. He takes on flesh. The concentric circle of taking on flesh and joining us in this human mess. And this concentric circle of him going outside the camp to the leprous and the sick and the diseased and the blind and the deaf and the poor and the afflicted and the oppressed. If you enjoy that picture of that Christ, then there's something to this I think you can enjoy. Paul said, I gladly boast in my weakness so that Christ's power will rest upon me. Man, that's what is distinct about the people of God. That's what's humble about the people of God is that we don't hide our weaknesses. We gladly boast in them because we're saying, look at me. I live outside the camp. But guess what? My Savior came out here to get me. He came here teaching and preaching and healing. He came outside the camp to bring in the likes of me. To, uh, to heal me, to give me wholeness. Man, if you are defective and unclean, you know, I actually had a Sunday, not, uh, it was a few months ago at this point, probably eight months ago, nine months ago, where I said in the sermon, I feel like a defective person. I think I've projected that in 15 years and not hidden that from this pulpit. It's not a confessional for me, okay? There's not some sort of catharsis or therapy that takes place up here. It's just an openness and honest, honestness that, honesty that I've never been the message, and I never will be. Hopefully, I will grow in some areas that I need some growth, but I will never not be defective. I'm not the good news. <laughs> Neither are you. Can you just celebrate that for a minute and just exhale for a minute? Give yourself a little margin, a little break, and go, oh, man, thankfully, I'm not the good news. And in that humble moment where you go, oh, I live outside the camp, leprosy, Blindness, lameness, defect, blemish, whatever it is that you can actually, with Paul, boast in it. You can say, no, no, I'm not going to hide it. Why would I hide that? I'm going to boast in it because then the power of Christ will rest on me. Man, that's actually attractive, I think, to a lost world. I think that's attractive where people are saying, let me tell you about my Savior. Not about myself. Let me tell you about my Savior and how awesome it is that he left the inner circle, that concentric ring, and came out and got the likes of me. If you're defective and unclean, if you're blemished and struggle with besetting sins and dark thoughts and selfishness and pride, if you're afflicted and oppressed, you'll find liberty in Christ. Because <laughs> that's what he does. So come to him and place your faith and your trust in him and him alone. Let me pray. God, I'm thankful for this picture that you've given us of our Savior and this bird's eye view of him teaching and preaching and healing. Lord, I'm thankful that what he taught in a synagogue in Nazareth that he fulfilled for us. Lord, we are thankful that he gives liberty to the oppressed. We're thankful that he's left the inner circle 
and your presence to take on flesh and to come get us and draw us back into the camp. Lord, we celebrate all those images this morning. We celebrate our Savior and we worship him. And pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew chapter 8 is where I'm going to be reading from on the uh, supper. It's a nice picture. Jesus has just preached the Sermon on the Mount. You know how this thing is flowing. From here, we're going into the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is finished and begins in chapter 8 with this little story. I told you we're going to swoop down to Napa the Earth. We're going to step off the plain and walk through some groves. Well, here's a little grove. He came down from the mountain. Great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. (laughs) Yeah, you can. Nobody else can. But you can. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. In some ways, he's healed him. He's made him whole. He's made him clean. He's made him now presentable. He can go into the presence. Go show yourself to the priest and go offer something. Go enjoy his presence. And for us, a room full of lepers made whole through Christ, a room full of blemished, reckoned and made whole through Christ, man, we're told, go on in there, show yourself to the priest, offer up and eat up. That's what we do each week at the supper. We eat up. He moves lepers to the inner circle to eat with God. The lepers, the lame, the diseased, the defective are reckoned whole by faith in Christ. His perfection becomes ours. As we distribute the elements, let me encourage you in this. If you are not trusting Christ as your Savior and Lord, then please forgo this little meal. It may not even look like much to you. And I, we can talk more about that. If you're curious, if you'd like to know what that is, you might be able to find out some more information with someone that came with you or someone that invited you or someone that you're sitting near. I'm, I'd like to be available and approachable if you have questions about the Lord's Supper. But for the rest of us who are taking this meal each week, man, let's take it as a bunch of lepers reckoned whole through Christ. Enjoying what he's accomplished for us. Enjoying that his perfections are reckoned ours. Let's distribute the elements.